a lawyer was uh, reading out the will of a rich man uh, to the people who were mentioned in the will. He said, To you, my loving wife Rose, who stood by me in rough times as well as good, I leave her the house and two million dollars. The lawyer continued, To my daughter Jessica, who looked after me in sickness and kept the business going, I leave her the yacht, the business, and one million dollars. The lawyer concluded, and to my cousin Dan, who hated me, argued with me, and thought that I would never mention him in my will while you are wrong. Hi, Dan. (laughs) Inheritance. Uh, Not always funny how it works out. Uh, In many families, it's an easy and sometimes even pleasant task. I know for my three siblings and me, when my mother died a couple years ago, it just went very smoothly. Uh, We argued over nothing. Everything got split. My mother was not a wealthy person, but there were some assets left and went very smoothly. But we know that in all too many cases, it's fraught with anxiety. Uh, Greed works its way in and deception even sometimes. The whole Ernie Banks um, inheritance now has been contested with his caregiver and a brand new will that showed up and his twin sons contesting that. It can be a messy, messy business. Inheritance seems to be a reality that goes all the way back as far as we know in human history. We see it used as an analogy in Scripture of what we receive from God, that we've received an inheritance, and the Holy Spirit is said to be a pledge of that inheritance. And in our prodigal son, our prodigal God story, it is inheritance, really, that is at the center of the story. There's a family here consisting of a father, an older son, and a younger son. And the story opens with a younger son requesting his share of the inheritance, or his share of the estate. Apparently, in ancient times, when the father died, the oldest son always got a double portion of what any other child got. So in the case of this story, where there's just two sons, the older son would get two-thirds of the estate, and the younger son would get one-third. And in our story here, we have the younger son requesting his one-third. The father, who's still alive, is surprisingly, though, and generously agrees, and he gives it to him. And even more remarkable in this story is the, is the forgiveness that the father extends to his son when he actually goes away, wastes all of that, and then comes back home repentant. The father extends grace to him. And that's what makes this a story of God's grace. And we're seeing it as a story of God's grace. But we're also learning in our study of the prodigal God that it's more than that. God is the one who is prodigal, meaning recklessly extravagant. The prodigal God study is then giving us a new way of understanding the extravagant grace of God found in this familiar terrible in Luke 15. Today we're going to look at that and come to a better understanding that this gift of grace, though free, did cost God something. The sacrificial love of the Father in this story seeks both sons who are distant and lost. There is a price that's paid. There is a grief that the father bears in order to extend this grace and love, not only to the younger son, but as we'll see on the way, the older son. Not today, but next week we'll get to the older son. So to better understand what this story is about um, and and, and what it teaches about grace, this story about inheritance, we will look at, first of all, the the meaning of this younger son's request. What did it mean for him to make that kind of request? Secondly, we'll look at the response to that request. And then thirdly, we're going to try to understand a little bit of what uh, kind of difference that makes to you and to me. 
The meaning of the younger son's request, verse 11 and 12, read this way. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. This is actually a crazy, way, totally out of line request for the son to make. In any culture, and especially that one. When is an inheritance divided up and distributed? When somebody dies, right? (laughs) And so in this Middle Eastern culture, it's as if this kid is saying, Father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead, because I want my money. The request was not only crazy and out of line, it would be a, a serious disgrace to the family name. Because of this young son, this is really an extraordinary disrespect for his father. So it was a disgrace, it was a disrespect it would seriously affect their economic standing as a family as well. This state is suddenly going to be devalued by one-third. It's as if it was 2008, right? Some of you experienced that, or more. Dad is going to have to sell off a third of his estate in order to meet this request. The son says, in a sense, I wish you were dead. And this great disrespect falls upon the family. Basically, this request has the potential to rip the family apart. And Tim Keller, who wrote the material, The Product of God, says this. It was a relational and economic act of violence against the family's integrity. A relational and economic act of violence against the family's integrity. Why would the son take such a risk? Augustine, who was the great Christian theologian of the late 4th and early 5th century, says it is because our hearts are distorted by what he calls disordered loves. Disordered loves. Augustine's most famous work was his Confessions. And there, in that work, he gives us a theory of why we do what we do and why we sin. He makes this rather interesting observation. He says this, A man has murdered another man. What was his motive? Either he desired his wife or his property, or else he would steal to support himself. Or else he was afraid of losing something to him. Or else, having been injured, he was burning to be revenged. Augustine goes on to say that even a murderer murders because he loves something. He loves romance, or he loves wealth, or he loves reputation, or he loves power. Way more than he loves God. It's a disordered love. We love and we look to things that we think will give joy and meaning when only God can ultimately give joy and meaning for life. It's a disordered love. The younger son lived with his father. He may have even obeyed him, but he did not love him. His love was disordered by sin. And we see him and his older brother then really loving the father's things, but not the father. Loving the father's things, but not the father. Both sons, really. The younger son wanted the stuff. He wanted the money. He wanted the wealth. He wanted the freedom that it would give him now. He wanted the pleasure that it would afford for him. He wanted the status that would make him look really cool. He wanted the status and all that it would buy. Dad was just a means to an end here. And so he makes the bold, disrespectful, selfish request out of this disordered love. The great irony, which we'll look at in more detail a bit later, uh, next week and the week after, is that the older son, though quite different, is loving in the same disordered way too. 
He loves the father's things more than the father as well. All of his whining and complaining at the end of the parable when he doesn't get the feast that his brother got, they point to this, that he is being the good son and obeying and serving the father, not out of love, but so he can get the father's favor and the father's things too. And the whining and the complaining and the anger directed at the father, he too is showering the father with disrespect and bringing more family shame and evidence of his lack of love, his disordered love as well. Both of them loving the father's things, but not the father. And now we look to the response to this request. The second part of verse 12 again says, so he divided his property between them. And then we jump to verse 20 where it says this, so he got up and went to his father while he was still a long way off. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now backing up to the request, this request that the son made would have shocked Jesus' listeners who are gathered around him. We talked about all the people around him, the sinners, the Pharisees, and everybody. But the request would have shocked them. But the father's response is even more amazing. Because the father was willing to divide the property. And in a sense, we will see, even divide his life. This was a patriarchal society in which you were required to show deference and to show reverence to those who were older than or, and or above you. This kind of disrespect, this kind of rudeness, and, and we would say even contempt, would likely have met with great anger and outrage. If this had happened in any family that they knew, then it would have met the, the anger of the father. The listeners would have expected the father to explode in anger and to drive the son away, and the culture would have allowed him even to do that, even if there was a, 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 a physical punishment that was extended to him, hitting and beating him as he went, could have been and would have been expected. But this father didn't do that. It simply says he divided the property. It likely meant selling off land and livestock. Now, if you're also reading uh, the book during our series here, you may have caught that the word translated as property in verse 12 is actually the Greek word bios, B-I-O-S. And you don't need to know Greek very well to be able to figure out what that word means. Biology is the study of life, yeah. Bios means life. And so the word chosen here in the Greek is the word for life in place of the word property. So literally it says that he divided his life between the two sons. Why this word? Probably is what it, because it is what it felt like to the father. His family, their good name, their status, their estate, his very life was going to get torn apart. His life was about to be divided and torn apart. So why did he do it? The older son, and probably many in the community, thought he was a fool to give in to the younger son's request. Probably thought he was just a softy at heart. But looking ahead in the story, we can see that what the Father is doing in the story, as Jesus tells the story, is he was keeping open a door. Keeping the door open to reconciliation. 
the possibility of restoration of this relationship, relationship, keeping the door to reconciliation open. You see, the father had become, if the, if the father had become embittered, if the father had beaten up on his son, if the father had rejected him and cut him off, then no restoration would have happened. Not likely. The father's heart may have become so hardened that he might not ever have been able to receive that son back. And knowing the embitterment of his father, the son may have never wanted to or expected the father ever to do so. Eliminating or or seriously damaging any chance that he would come to a place of repentance and seeking restoration. Here's a clue to some of the spiritual application right now. That the father, by bearing the agony and pain of the son's sin himself, instead of taking revenge, instead of paying the son back by inflicting pain on him, By bearing all of that, the Father kept the door to reconciliation open. The Father was willing to suffer for the sin of the child so that someday reconciliation would be possible. This is this gift of grace costing something to the Father. The pain and the the hurt of this disrespect and this out-of-line request and the disappearance of his son to the whole third of his estate, the disgrace to the family name, all of that was, was, a, was something that the father was carrying and bearing. Which gets at thirdly now the, the difference that this makes for us. Here's another thing from, from Augustine. In addition to disordered loves we spoke of earlier, remember the murderer, even the murderer loves something? Augustine also speaks of inordinate love, a love that's over the top and out of line and, and kind of a, in, a, in a crazy sort of way. It's a misplaced kind of love. Inordinate love or what he describes uh, as idols, idols of the heart. Whether we are the the freewheeling, irreligious younger brother or the moral, religious older brother, we have this problem. Inordinate love speaks of the things that we idolize, the things that we give our love to, the things that we give our passion to, and it's easily misplaced. That love and passion that ultimately ought to be for God goes to other things. And it can even... Life can even look okay from certain perspectives. An example that Keller shares is this. It would be kind of like what we refer to as an emotional affair. A wife has a husband who spends long hours with another woman. He talks with this other woman about his and her problems. The husband goes traveling with this woman and thinks about her and talks about her incessantly. Finally, the wife confronts her husband. He says, what's the problem? I married you, didn't I? I support you. I bring the paycheck home. I pay the mortgage. In fact, I I fulfill all of my basic duties as a husband. And if anyone ever asks me if you're my wife, I say, of course you're my wife. Why then are you so upset? (laughs) The wife would rightly say then that his passions are misplaced. Someone else has captured his heart and his imagination. It is an inordinate love. Many of us can identify with the older brother. We may obey all the rules, but our heart and our passions may be something else. 
We may be keeping all the rules and lining all things up, but we are, our passions are misplaced and focus much more on something else like perhaps our careers, on making money. We can even misplace our passions and put an inordinate love on our children that gets us out of line. Or our focus and our passions can be on the need for status or acceptance by our peers. If anything, if anything has a controlling position in our heart, if anything is more important to us and more important to our happiness than God, then that thing becomes God with a small g to us. It is an inordinate love. And I think, I'm afraid, we can all identify with both of the sons and their sin and their struggle. But here in here then is the message of God's sacrifice for us. God's desire to forgive sin and to restore relationship. We have in the story that the Father's love bearing our judgment. Here's the difference for us. The Lord has done for us what the Father in the parable did for his Son. When God came into this world, we would have expected him to come in wrath and anger. We read the stories of, of, the, of the flood and Noah and all that, and we, we expect God to be like that consistently and always. And when he desired to come and to, to visit, and he came to be God incarnate, we might expect him to come and say, that's it, or even a little bit of the anger that we saw in this morning's scripture reading. That God would come in wrath and anger, that he would be embittered, and he would say, I've had it up to here with humanity, and he would be ready to beat us up and drive us away from his presence. But he did not. He did not come to bring judgment, but to bear our judgment. He did not come to bring judgment, but to bear our judgment. As the father in the story carried the pain of loss, and he carried this ripping and tearing apart of his family, and he does not heap guilt of it all where it belonged on the younger son, so God bears our sins in Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross in weakness and there on the cross, voluntarily, his life was divided. His life was literally torn apart. But he did it so that when we repent, like the younger brother, forgiveness and reconciliation are now available. Jesus' love, the consistent love of the Father and the love that we know in Jesus, the Son of God, keeps the door open and a hope for reconciliation. Scripture says that Jesus, or Jesus says of himself in the story of Zacchaeus, he says, I came to seek and to save, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he would have to die to do that, to forgive the sin that separated all kinds of sinners. Most of us could probably quote John 3.16, or at least you've seen it at a football game if nowhere, anywhere else. We know well 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But verse 17, people, is very important too. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment and to save us. The table continues to represent for us this welcome of God, but the the chairs at the end, I want you to consider them as representing those two sons. 
Very different in the way they were responding to the Father. Very different in the way that they were handling the details of their life. One son, the irreligious son, wanting to run away and take it all with him. The other son trying to be as obedient, as good as he could be. And yet both of them loving things more than they were loving the Father. And our table that we have before us in the sanctuary now is a Lenten table as well. The purple, again, speaks of royalty. Jesus, our king, but it also speaks of suffering. Why? The garment that was placed on Jesus as they beat him and tortured him before the crucifixion was a purple garment. So the purple gives us this mixed message of of royalty and yet of the suffering that Jesus went through. And the purple here reminds us of the suffering of Christ, that both of these sons and all of us who are invited back to the table would know that forgiveness and know that grace, and know the depth of love for the Father for us, and that we will respond in depth of love for him as well. Lent is a season of repentance and penitence. And so we share this story, and we are doing this study so that we can get closer to the heart of God and, and this grace that he's given us, but we realize that the grace costs something. The sacrificial love of the Father in the story seeks both sons who are distant lost, and it seeks you, and it seeks me as well. And so it's a season of confession. We need to look at what are the inordinate loves that pull our passions away from God. We need to be in a posture of confession and saying, Lord, I need that grace. I need that forgiveness. These are the things, Lord, that keep pulling my heart away, that distort my love and make an an inordinate one. Lord, as I make my confession to you, I'm not telling you anything that you've never heard before, but I'm agreeing with you that this is where my heart has been oriented. And when we do that, then we freshly receive again the grace of God and are reminded that we have a place at the table. The father felt great pain in this story. We see him as making a quick decision, dividing the property and welcoming the son back and throwing a party. And he did. And he bore the pain that there might be reconciliation and wholeness as well. Before we conclude the service with a couple songs this morning, let's just spend a few moments in reflection on those things that I just said. First of all, think through what, what are the inordinate loves that pull your passions away from God? And as you think of those, name them to God. Confess them. Agree with God. And be ready to receive his grace and to find your place at the table. Spend a few moments in silent prayer and then we'll move forward. Lord God, we confess before you that there are many things that tug at our heart, that pull us uh, away from the security and the fullness and the fulfillment of your love. Whether it's things that make us feel good on the outside or things that bring us pleasure on the inside, a grasping for power, a settling for security, a laziness that makes us do nothing when we need to be acting. 
Lord, they're all things that pull us in different ways. Lord, I just pray that the image of this table would be one that continues to draw us and invite us to the place where we're safe at your table and there's fulfillment and there's goodness and there's wholeness in your presence and in your love. Thank you for this costly gift of grace that you've given. We thank you that we can be called your children, children of the Father who gathers us around his table. And we pray this in your name. Amen.